Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll be reading verses 5 to 10 today. But our focus will be verses 9 and 10. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. There the word of Christ says this. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, to be together today, and Lord, to have your kindness upon us, Lord, by giving to us your word, Lord, that teaches us, Lord, it makes us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Lord, as we are seeking to understand this passage, Lord, we pray that you confirm to us more and more that our Lord Jesus Christ is the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Lord, that our hope and our confidence would be in him and in him alone. Lord, that we would put no, Lord, confidence in our flesh. Lord, that we would not look to any man or to any ritual or to anything else in this world to deliver us, Lord, from sin and death, but only to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, confirm us in our faith more and more. And, Lord, teach us today that those who have fled to Jesus for refuge, Lord, that they have a sure confidence, Lord, of entering into eternal life. So, Lord, build us up today, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we will finish this section today that we began a couple of weeks ago in verses 5 to 10, where the apostle is showing that Jesus is the great high priest over the household of God and the only one who can actually secure the salvation of his people. Right, Essential to his fulfilling of this role as high priest are the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Right? Without his sufferings, he cannot serve as the great high priest over the household of God. And this is why God the Father ordained for him a life of suffering and hardship. Why he is described in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows and one who was acquainted with grief. Last week we saw that even though Jesus was the Son of God, right? even though he had this unique relationship with the Father, possessing the same divine nature as God the Father, yet he took on human flesh, and as a man, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. This learning of obedience was not some deficiency in either the knowledge of God's will or in his faithfulness to obey that will, but his learning was his gaining an experiential knowledge through his obedience to God. When he was subjected to various sufferings by the will of God, he did not rebel against these things. He did not refuse to submit to God's will. And as he went through these sufferings with perfect obedience, he learned by way of experience what it was to be faithful in God in all of these various situations. His sufferings were the occasion given by God for him to manifest the perfection of all of his virtues. For all of the fruits of the Spirit... 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all these were found in Christ without measure. They were in him perfect, perfectly. They were perfected in him. And the various trials and tribulations he experienced in life were the occasion given to him to manifest the perfection of all of these traits that resided in him. And no matter how difficult the trial, no matter how severe the temptation, no matter how sorrowful the suffering he faced, he always perfectly obeyed the will of God the Father. He committed no sin against God and no sin against man in the midst of even his most difficult and severe trials and tribulations. Trials that would cause us to crumble, right? None of us could stand under these things, yet he bore all of these things perfectly loving God and perfectly loving his neighbor as himself. And this learning of obedience in the things he suffered was most clearly seen in his greatest trial, which is his death on the cross. When God the Father called him to go and to offer his life and to die on the cross for our sins, Jesus did not resist God's will, but he willingly laid down his life for us. This was his most difficult test of obedience, and he passed through this test with perfect obedience. And so he proved himself to be the perfect, sinless, righteous Lamb of God, who only is qualified to serve as both great high priest over the household of God, and also as the sacrifice that can take away the sins of his people. And this is what we will turn to today in verses 9 and 10, where the apostle shows the result of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Why it was necessary for him to learn obedience and how this qualifies him to take away our sins. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. There it says, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. There he begins by saying, in having been made perfect. Jesus, having been made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation. Now here, we must be very cautious, as we were last week, when it said that Jesus learned obedience. We remember that this learning of obedience was not in relationship to knowledge, nor in relationship to conformity to God's will. Jesus did not learn obedience in that he was ignorant of some aspects of God's will. And as he came to a fuller knowledge, a fuller understanding of the will of God, then he changed his previous practice to align with his new understanding of the will of God. This was not the case because if that was the case, then Jesus would have committed sins. Though they would have been sins of ignorance, they still would be a lack of conformity to the will of God. Also, Jesus did not learn obedience in that his life was conformed more and more to God's will. So that earlier in his life, there was a mixture of obedience and disobedience. And as he learned obedience, he became more obedient in areas where he previously had been disobedient. This also cannot be the case, for if it was the case, then Jesus would have committed sins in his earlier life, and he would not be the sinless, perfect Lamb of God. If Jesus is not sinless, then we have no hope of salvation in him, right? And this is a matter that is central to our understanding of the gospel and central to our salvation. We must contend and believe in the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. And we can say with 100% certainty and conviction that anyone who teaches that Jesus sinned, that this is rank heresy, right? This is outside of the bounds of faith. This is 
uh, unbelief of the highest order. If a person believes that Jesus sinned, he cannot be saved. Because how can a sinful Savior save us from our sins? This is a non-negotiable. It is a central doctrine, an article of the Christian faith. There is no gospel, there is no salvation in a Christ who committed sin. Only a perfect, spotless, sinless Savior can take away our sins. Jesus must be perfectly righteous in order to secure for us eternal salvation. And the Bible testifies repeatedly that Jesus was without sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, Of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. There, very clearly, he committed no sin, and even in his mouth, which in terms of sinful men, the chief instrument that we use in our life to commit and to manifest the sinfulness of our heart is what instrument of the body? It is the mouth. It is the tongue. And even in his mouth, there was no deceit found in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. He had no experience of committing sin against God. It was completely foreign to his life, to his obedience, to his existence. He never sinned. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Yes, he was tempted to sin, but in these temptations, did he ever succumb to, tent, to sin? Did he ever commit an actual sin even when he was tempted? And the answer is no. And then Hebrews 7.26, It was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Our high priest is holy, innocent, and undefiled. And he is separated from us, not in terms of our nature, right? In terms of having a human nature, he has a nature like ours. But in terms of the sinful nature, he is not like us. He is separated from us. He does not have this sinful nature. So with that in mind, the sinless perfection of Christ, then we can rightly understand Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, how it is that Jesus was made perfect, right? His being made perfect cannot mean that he was imperfect, but as he learned obedience, he became perfect, right? When we hear that term or that phrase that someone or something is made perfect, it seems that Jesus possessed some imperfection, and as those imperfections were taken away from him, then he obtained perfection, or he became perfect in that way. And certainly, this is true of us, right? This is true of us in terms of our sanctification. We, even as Christians, still possess many imperfections. We possess many areas of sin, many areas of weakness, many areas where we are disobedient to God. And because we still have a sinful flesh, there is a sense in which we are being made perfect by the work of the Spirit of God, in that our lives are being conformed more and more to the life of Christ. We are like gold that still has a mixture of dross and impurity within it. And as we are refined in this life, as we are sanctified in this life, 
that dross is gradually over time, over the course of our life, more and more of it is removed and we are made more perfect or we're conformed more to the image of Christ. But in this life for us, that dross is never perfectly taken away, but it will be perfectly taken away in the life to come when we are glorified and we are conformed into the image of Christ. So this is an accurate description of our sanctification. However, this cannot be true of Jesus Christ. For Christ had no imperfection. There was no impurity, there was no sin in him. Jesus was pure gold from his conception. He was perfect throughout all of his life. There was never any imperfections of sin that needed to be removed from Jesus Christ. So then, how is he being made perfect? And here, his being made perfect is speaking of his consecration. His consecration before God. He was sanctified by God or set apart by God for this office of high priest and as the only sacrifice for sin. And what set him apart for these roles was his righteousness, his life of perfect obedience and perfect conformity to the will of God. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that was manifested throughout his life and most clearly seen in his sufferings, his obedience that was manifested in his sufferings, this perfect conformity to the will of God, no matter what trial God subjected him to, even when God called him to go and to die the death, even the death on the cross. In all of these, he always did the will of the Father. He never rebelled, even when God called him to die the shameful death on the cross. And it's his perfect righteousness was manifested in his life of obedience to God. Perfect conformity to the law of God, seen in every facet of his life, but most clearly seen in the things that he suffered. This is why he learned obedience through his sufferings. This is why his obedience was manifested in this way. It was his sufferings that his obedience was most severely tried. And no matter how God tried him, he always obeyed, he always submitted, he always did the will of God. And thus he proved himself to be the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. He was proven in sufferings to be the righteous Son of God. And it is this righteousness that sets him apart from everyone else. Isn't that what we just read from Hebrews chapter 7? He is separated from sinners. He is set apart from the common lot of mankind. And what distinguished Jesus from the rest of us is what? It is his righteousness, right? His perfect obedience to do the will of God. This is what sanctified him or consecrated him to serve in the role as great high priest over the household of God. His qualifications, or his right to serve as high priest, did not come through a ritual, it did not come through a ceremony, but it came through his life of perfect obedience to God. This is in contrast to Aaron. Aaron also was consecrated, but his consecration came in a different way. It could not come through his righteousness because Aaron was not a righteous man, but rather he was a sinful man. Exodus chapter 29. Exodus 29, verses 1 to 9, and then verses 19 to 21 speak of 
the consecration of Aaron and his sons. Exodus 29, verse 1. How it was that they became qualified under the law to serve in this capacity or this office of priests and as high priests. Exodus 29.1, now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil, and you shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod of the breastpiece and gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. And you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statue. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then verse 19. Then you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall slaughter the ram, and take some of its blood, and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the lobes of his son's right ear, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet, and sprinkle the rest of the blood around on the altar. Then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar, and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron, and on his garments, and on his sons, and on his sons' garments with him. So he and his garments shall be consecrated, as well as his sons, and his sons' garments with them. Here Aaron was called by God, to serve in this capacity of high priest. But then there was the necessity of this ceremony or this ritual by which God set them apart for this task. And here, Aaron and his sons were consecrated in this way, set apart from the common lot of their brothers by Moses through the sacrifice of this animal. In terms of nature, Aaron was no different than the rest of the children of Abraham. He was equally a descendant from Abraham as the rest, equally a descendant from Isaac and Jacob as the rest, and then even from the tribe of Levi, he was equally descended from all the rest of the Levites, right? So there was nothing in his nature that set him apart from the rest of them. But what is it that set him apart? The call of God. God gave him this call, and then God, uh, he confirmed this call through this ritual, through this sanctification, through his consecration by the hands of Moses through the sacrifice of the animal. Moses consecrated Aaron to serve as high priest through the shedding of the blood of an animal. The animal suffered, and under the law, the high priests were consecrated through this suffering of the animal through the shedding of its blood. And in the Old Covenant, Nearly everything is consecrated or sanctified by blood in this way. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 9. And let's actually pick up in verse 18. It says, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. 
For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is how Aaron and his sons, and also all of the other instruments and articles that were used in the worship of God, such as the altar, such as the tabernacle, such as the various articles there. And here, even the people were sprinkled with blood so that they would be set apart from the rest of mankind as those who are called to worship God. And in this old covenant, nearly everything is sprinkled with blood in this way as its consecration as what sets it apart. Well, Jesus also, just as Aaron was called to be a high priest, so Jesus also was called to be a high priest. But the call of Jesus, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 5, was greater than the call of Aaron. Because when God called Jesus, he called him by the name of son, but he did not call Aaron by that name. So also the consecration of Jesus must be greater than Aaron's. And Jesus's consecration is not done through the sprinkling of the blood of a bull or of a goat or of any other animal, nor is it by the laying on of the hands of Moses or any other prophet or any other man on this earth. The basis of his consecration is his obedience in sufferings, culminating in his death on the cross. It is not the suffering of some animal that consecrates him, but it is his own suffering. It is not the blood of a bull or a goat that sets him apart. It is his own blood that sets him apart as high priest and as the altar of God and as the tabernacle of God and as the sacrifice that can take away the sins of the people. And no man on earth consecrated Jesus so that he could take up the office of high priest. Aaron was consecrated by Moses. Moses was the one given this duty by God to consecrate Aaron. And Moses could serve in that capacity because in terms of office and rank, Moses was greater than Aaron. But who from among men could consecrate our Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anyone on this earth who is greater than Christ, who could stand over him and consecrate him to this role of high priest? And then what about the sacrifice? that was used to consecrate Aaron, the sprinkling of the blood of an animal. Well, what sacrifice from this earth could be given whose blood could be shed to consecrate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? There is no life on this earth that could consecrate Jesus. Not the life of an animal, nor the life of a sinful man could serve as the basis for his consecration. There is no one and there is nothing found on this earth that could perform this role for Jesus Christ. So who had to do it? He had to do it himself. God the Father consecrated him, and Jesus consecrated himself by the will of God, by obeying God, and by offering his blood as the atonement for our sins. He consecrated himself, and he offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 speaks of this by way of prophecy. 
verses 16 and 17. Isaiah 59, verse 16. It says, Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. There the Lord saw that there was no man found on earth who could intercede. No one who could bring salvation. So who had to do it? He had to do it himself. He had to do it through his own son, Jesus Christ. And what is it here that upheld Jesus in this salvation? It is his own righteousness. His righteousness and his righteousness is as his breastplate. Just as Aaron and his sons had their breastplate symbolically or typically Jesus had his breastplate, but his breastplate is his own righteousness. There is no person who could sanctify Jesus Christ. There is no sacrifice offered that could consecrate him to this role of high priest except his own life. And this is why he says in John 17, verse 19, John 17, 19, it says, For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, I sanctify myself. And the basis of that sanctification is his righteousness, his obedience to do the will of God. This is what he means when he says he was made perfect, right? He was proven to be perfect through his sufferings in his obedience in these things. And this is what consecrated him or set him apart to this position and role as high priest. It is on the basis of his righteousness. His person and his righteousness are what qualified him to serve as high priest over the household of God. And as high priest, he is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And the gift that he offers is his own body or his own life, and he sheds his own blood for us. He is the high priest, and he is the sacrifice, all in the one person, Jesus Christ, for our sakes, for our redemption. And then what is the result of the consecration of Jesus Christ as high priest? Well, notice what he says next. He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He is the source of eternal salvation. The source. He's not a source. He's not one source of many sources of eternal salvation. He's not the greatest source of eternal salvation. He is the only source of eternal salvation. There is no other salvation. There is no other source where a man can go and have all of his sins forgiven all of them washed away, there is only one source, and that source is Jesus Christ. Him being a high priest for a man, and him serving as the sacrifice for his sins. This is the only way that we can be brought near to God, only through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As it says in Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12, He is the stone which was reject rejected by you, the builders, 
but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ. There is no other source of eternal salvation, only him. Him as high priest offering his own body and shedding his own blood on our behalf. This is the only source, the only sacrifice by which sinners can have their sins atoned for and we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. No other religion has salvation. Whatever salvation they teach or promise to their adherents, it is false. It is a false salvation that will not result in true salvation, but only in condemnation. There is no salvation found in works of the law. Our works, our obedience to the law, will never result in salvation. There is no salvation found in our own righteousness. Even as Christians, even as believers with the Spirit of God, even then our righteousness cannot be the basis of our salvation. There is salvation in no man on this earth. Only one man, the man who is Christ Jesus. There is not salvation in any ritual. There's not salvation in any church, as if that church is the sole possessor of salvation. Now, the church is a buttress of salvation. The church is to guard salvation. We are to teach the way of salvation. But is the church itself the source of eternal salvation? No. The only source is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only one sacrifice that can take away our sins. Only one high priest who can serve as mediator between God and man. Only one fountain where we can go and have our sins washed away. There is only one physician where, who can heal us of all of our sinful diseases. It is only Jesus Christ and only his precious blood. And we must remember this at all times. He and he alone is our hope. He and he alone can save us from our sins. He and he alone can reconcile us to God, only Jesus Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he wanted to know among them. And these are Christians, believers. But even as believers, all he wanted to know among them was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucified In every part of Scripture, every verse of Scripture, in some way, shape, or another, all goes back to this point. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He is the only source of salvation. And if we are pointing people to anyone other than Jesus Christ, or causing them to put their hope on anything other than Jesus Christ, then we are leading them astray. We are depriving them of any hope of salvation. It says in Isaiah 44, verse 8, Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long ago since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. There is no other God, and there is no other rock. There is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And this must be the anthem of the church. This must be our hope, our joy, our comfort, our consolation, all the days of our sojourning on this life, that our salvation is resting upon Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness, 
His death given for us to save us from our sins. We cannot put our hope for salvation in anything else. Not in any vain idol. Not in any other man. And certainly never in our own righteousness. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Whenever we put our hope in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, we are forsaking the fountain of living water, who is Jesus, the source of salvation, and we are building for ourselves or hewing for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water, that are completely useless and do not benefit us at all. This is why we must keep our focus on Christ. Anytime we place our hope or our confidence or our assurance on anything other than him, then we are forsaking salvation. We are turning away from the only hope of salvation. And again, even as Christians, even though we want to live a godly life, we desire to live a godly life, and even though in some measure we are able to do so by the help of the Spirit of God, we are able to walk in His commandments. But even the righteousness produced in us by the Spirit, is that our foundation? Is that our hope of eternal salvation? No, it's not. And if it was, it would fail. Because even our righteousness in this life there is always a mixture of sin within that. Even it has to be sanctified by the very blood of Jesus Christ. Our entire existence, our standing before God, whether that be at our conversion, whether that be throughout our Christian life, or whether that be our eternal existence with God in the new heavens and new earth, if we are in a right relationship with God, if we have a right standing before Him, if we have God's favor upon us, the basis of that is Jesus Christ. He is the source of eternal salvation. And notice there that he describes this salvation as eternal, in contrast to temporal salvation. God delivered Israel from Egypt. And this deliverance of Israel from Egypt, which in the Old Testament is the greatest type or picture or illustration of deliverance in the Bible, but that deliverance was temporal, right? It was not an eternal deliverance. It was a deliverance from a condition of slavery and oppression into a position of freedom and of prosperity. But it was not eternal. Because what happened to all those who were delivered and brought out of Egypt? Eventually, they all died. Most of them died in the wilderness. And even their children who were brought into the land of promise, eventually they died as well. So whatever deliverance and whatever blessing they experienced from God in terms of their being brought out of Egypt, in terms of the temporal nature of it, it was only for a short period of time. It only applied to this present life. But the salvation purchased by Jesus Christ is eternal salvation. It has promise not only for the present life, but primarily for the life to come, right? It goes into the life to come, and it is never ending. It is an eternal salvation that the believer, that the child of God will experience from his conversion for all eternity. He will never fall out of this state of salvation, but he has it in this eternal sense. Also, this eternal salvation is in contradiction or in opposition to eternal condemnation. 
right? The salvation of Christ must be eternal if it is to truly be salvation because the results of our sin, the condemnation that we are owed due to our sin against God is not temporal condemnation. It is eternal damnation, eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. And we know that that death, it does apply to this present life in that our bodies die, but that's only the first death. There is also the second death, and the second death is the lake of fire. So if Jesus is going to save us from our sins and from the dreadful curse of the law, then his salvation must be eternal salvation because the condemnation we are under because of our disobedience is an eternal condemnation. And this is exactly what he has accomplished for us. This is where his salvation is most needed, right? We are not most in need of a better life now, right? Our greatest problem is not our situation in this life. It is not our peace and happiness in this world. It is not in our social standing. It is not in our financial standing. It is not in our educational standing, right? None of these things are our ultimate source of deprivation and what brings misery upon us in this life. What is the source of all of man's problems? It is our sin. It is our sin and the curse that we are under as a result of our sin. And this is where we need deliverance. We need a Savior who can save us from our sins. And this is, isn't this why in Matthew 1, when the angel announced to Joseph the birth of Jesus, he told him to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is what Christ came into the world to do. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save us from our sins. And this salvation needs to be eternal and needs to be spiritual because the condemnation we are under is spiritual and eternal as well as physical. This is what he has come to do, to deliver us from the eternal curse of the law. And he redeemed us from eternal condemnation by offering his sinless life as a sacrifice for our sins. He fulfilled all righteousness for us by perfectly obeying all the precepts of the law, and he fulfilled all righteousness for us by bearing in his own body the penalty of the law. And it is his person and his work that are the only source of eternal salvation. It all rests upon Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone upon which the people of God, the household of God, is built. He has accomplished it all for us. And whatever we're talking about regarding salvation, whether regeneration, whether our justification, whether sanctification, whether our glorification, whether faith or repentance or good works or perseverance, every aspect of our salvation comes from what source? It all comes from Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Even faith that God produces in us comes from this source. It comes from Jesus Christ, and it is wrought and brought about in us through his Holy Spirit, but it was purchased for us by his death and given by his resurrection. All of the blessings of salvation from start to finish have been secured by God for us through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His righteous life given for our sins, his precious blood shed on our behalf. 
And if our focus ever shifts to anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we are completely missing the point of Christianity, right? We don't even understand the very basics, the very fundamentals of the Christian faith. We must keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And we also deprive ourselves of any hope of salvation, any assurance, and any comfort. Because if I'm looking to my own righteousness as the basis for my hope and comfort, then I'm always going to be on shaking sand, right? Because my righteousness is, is never going to be good enough, right? Either that or I'll become a hypocrite and a Pharisee and convince myself that I am righteous in my own eyes when truly I am not. And this is one of the reasons that God leaves us. In this life, we are in this state of imperfection, right? He brings about our salvation in stages, It is true that as believers, we do have salvation now. We truly possess salvation. But do we have the final outcome of our salvation right now? None of us does. We still have the flesh. We're still being perfected or we're being sanctified in this life. We still have our daily sins. And these serve as a constant reminder to us throughout this life that our hope always has been and always will be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ that he is the basis for our right relationship and our standing before God. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Titus 3, 4 to 7. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There he saved us, not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but by his mercy. In the regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit, he pours these things out on us through who? Through Jesus Christ. Christ our Savior. He is the source by which all of the blessings of salvation are poured out upon us. Also notice as well in verse 9 that this eternal salvation brought about through the consecration of Jesus Christ, it is not for all men, but it is for those who obey him. Notice what he says, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. The condition set by God for a man to benefit from the person and work of Christ is that we must obey him. This is the condition that is established by God. It does not matter if a man is a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter if he is male or female, or she is male or female, slave or free, young or old, rich or poor. Right, whatever distinctions that exist among men, none of these things guarantee a person a share in the tree of life, and none of these things exclude a person from the eternal salvation found in Jesus Christ. The only condition here that is established by God is that one must obey Him. He is not the source of eternal salvation for all men, but only for those who obey Him. And no one has ever been excluded from the hope of salvation on the basis of any other criteria or any other distinction. 
It is only man's stubborn pride. It is his arrogant unbelief, his haughty disobedience that will exclude him from the blessings of salvation and the hope of eternal life. Now here, this obedience cannot be works of the law or deeds that we have done in righteousness. We just read that from Titus chapter 3. And if it is works of the law, he's unraveling everything that he has just said. And we know from Romans 3 verse 20 that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This would contradict everything that he's teaching in the whole book of Hebrews if he's talking about our obedience, our righteousness as the basis of our salvation. But here, obedience is being used to describe man's entire response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith that manifests itself in a life of obedience to Christ. Or, as it calls it in Romans 16, the obedience of faith. To obey simply means to believe the gospel. To trust in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But this faith cannot be temporary faith. It, can be not, it cannot be the faith of the seed that was sown among the rocky ground or the seed that was sown there among the thorns. It cannot be superficial faith. It cannot be a spurious faith, but it must be true, genuine faith. And what is always the evidence of true, genuine faith? Well, what does it say in James chapter 2? Faith without works is dead. True faith always manifests itself in obedience to God. And this is what he's emphasizing here. Not that our focus would be on our obedience. Not that he's teaching that we're saved apart from faith or without faith by our obedience. Not teaching that the source of our salvation is our own obedience to God. Of course he doesn't mean that. But it is faith that is manifested, accompanied by obedience to Christ. Faith proven by obedience. As we mentioned earlier, Romans chapter 16, it calls it the obedience of faith. Or in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8, it says, Of the unbelievers, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And what does the gospel of the Lord Jesus, what does it command us to do? To believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. To put our hope and our trust in Him and in Him alone. But there, the unbelievers are described as those who do not obey the gospel. They refuse to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 4.17 It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then John 6, 28 to 29. John 6, 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work that God requires of men Not that it is a work that man is producing on his own, but this is what God requires. It is faith in Christ, or we must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole duty of man to God is found in believing in him whom he has sent. This is the obedience of faith. 
Faith is the means established by God by which sinful men become partakers of the eternal salvation found in Jesus Christ. We must believe in him. And when we believe in Christ, we are grafted into him so that his life, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his strength, everything that he has is poured into us, right? It comes to us through the means of faith. We are connected by faith to the spring of living water, to the source of eternal salvation. And those who refuse to believe, then they're not connected to the source of eternal salvation, Therefore, they do not have eternal salvation, but instead they remain dead in their trespasses and sins, and the wrath of God abides upon them. If one has no hope of eternal salvation, then they are still under the curse of the law, and all that awaits them is a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. Eternal condemnation will be his portion in the lake of fire. And this is why it is so important for us to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? To believe in Christ and for us to teach our children to trust in Christ and to teach our friends and family to trust in Christ and to call all men to trust in Christ as the only source by which a man can be made right in the sight of God and by which he can have his sins forgiven. Then verse 10, Hebrews 5.10, this will be very, very brief. It says there, being designated by God, as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Here again, we will only briefly say that the apostle proves that Jesus' priesthood is likened unto the priesthood of Melchizedek. Right? He's not a priest after the order of Aaron, but he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And in the Old Testament, Melchizedek is the preeminent, he is the greatest example or the greatest type of Christ in all of the Old Testament scriptures. Because not only does he symbolize or prefigure the work of Christ, but he also prefigures the very person of Christ, his divine nature. Because he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And this is what we will turn to in chapter 7. What is it for Jesus to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek? This is what his goal is, is to explain this. But before he does, the remainder of chapter 5 and then chapter 6, he is going to rebuke the church and give them a warning because they're sluggish. They're being sluggish in their hearing of the things of God. And before he turns to this very deep, very important topic of the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek, he needs to encourage them. He needs them to shake off their sluggishness so that they're listening and they're rightly paying attention to the things of God so that they will accept and believe the very things and be established in the faith that he is urging them to. And this is what we will turn to next week when he gives his rebuke to the church for being slow of learning and how it is that we must learn these things. And until that time, let's offer our prayer to the Lord and then we'll anticipate uh, this call to diligence in the things of God that we'll turn to next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, knowing, Lord, having such a confirmation to us Lord, that salvation can be found in no one else 
Lord, only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see this. Lord, we know that there are many people today, Lord, many in other parts of the world, Lord, even many here in our own nation, who are worshiping idols. Lord, they are putting their hope for salvation, for blessing, Lord, for eternity, in something that will never be able to deliver on the promises that it makes them. There is no salvation, Lord, in any of these false religions. And Lord, we know as well that there are many today who are trusting in their own righteousness. Lord, who think that if they can just muster up enough effort, do enough good deeds, and as long as their good outweighs their bad, that they will be accepted into heaven and into eternal life. Lord, we know as well that there are many who put their trust in rituals, Lord, in baptism, in taking of the communion. Lord, they put their hope in some connection to the church. They put their hope in their family, their genealogy, Lord. People are putting their hope in so many things. And yet, Lord, we see that if there is any source of hope or comfort for salvation that is coming from any other source than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then, Lord, it is complete foolishness. And it will not lead to salvation, but it will only result in damnation and, Lord, having your curse upon us. So, Father, we thank you that, Lord, you have placed us in a position, Lord, that you have opened our eyes, and that, Lord, we are confessing openly and outwardly, outwardly, Lord, that Jesus Christ is the only source of salvation. And, Lord, we see that so clearly in your word. And, Lord, we know that only you can open our eyes to see and to understand and realize these things. Father, I pray that our knowledge of this truth would be accompanied with true faith. Lord, that we would believe in him. Lord, that we would never trust in anything that we have done as the basis of our salvation, but that we would see from start to finish, Lord, it is all based upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way in which sinful men can be righteous in your sight. Lord, not through works of the law. Lord, not through deeds that we have done in righteousness. Lord, but through your Son, Jesus Christ, offering his life as a sacrifice for ours, shedding his blood to take our sins away. And we thank you that he is our high priest who is serving over us today. Lord, who is ministering before you in the things pertaining to God who has offered gifts and sacrifices for our sin, offering his own blood. And, Lord, we see that in him, Lord, we do have your approval. Lord, we do have your favor that you call us your dearly loved children. And so, Lord, we pray that you would confirm us more and more into this great salvation. And, Lord, that we would never turn away from it. And, Lord, that we would never take our eyes upon Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray that... In this church, Lord, for many generations, Lord, that among our children and our grandchildren and, Lord, our great-grandchildren and, Lord, however long you see fit to establish this church, Father, we pray that here among us and amongst the believers that gather here, Lord, that we would know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, Lord, we pray for our children and our grandchildren 
Lord, we pray that they also would partake of this source of eternal salvation. Lord, that all the blessings that are found in Christ would be conveyed to them as well. In that, Lord, you would produce, Lord, true faith, true repentance, Lord, in them, and that for many generations, Lord, amongst the families that are gathered here, there would be found those who are true believers, who have been sanctified by the blood of Christ, Lord, who have been washed by the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would grant to us this favor and this blessing for many generations, and that you would raise up for yourself, Lord, a people among us, Lord, who have been bought by the blood of Christ and who are zealous for good works. Lord, may you be glorified in all that we do. And Father, again, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ to come and to be our high priest and to be the sacrifice for our sins. And we offer all of our prayers today and all of our worship to you. Lord, we offer on the basis of his life. And Lord, we ask for you to sanctify it by his blood that it might be, sancti- that it might be acceptable in your sight. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.